Hi, my name is Lila Turner and you are listening to the Becoming Relationship Ready podcast series. Here we'll be discussing the twists, the turns, the ups and downs and the wins and fails of finding love and connection. Each week, I will have a different guest share their experience and relationship stories. I'll want to know what are their stumbling blocks, what have their blind spots been, what have their relationship patterns been that felt unbreakable. And I'll also want to know what are their relationship hacks, what have they discovered about themselves and relationships that has been a game changer for them. Welcome, Zebedee. It's really nice to have you. Thank you for coming. Looking forward to hearing what you're going to say, because I can't assume I know what people are going to say. I've had people on here that I've known for 10 years and been like, I never knew that. And then I thought, God, I'm a really bad friend, a bad listener, or haven't been curious enough. So I can't (laughs) assume I'm going to know what you're going to say, even though you're my sister. Mm -hmm. I think you should be very afraid now you've opened up this conversation. You are like a sought after, whether you want to admit it or not, a headhunted maths teacher. And you are very progressive in your thinking about maths. And I referred to you actually in an interview the other day when I was talking about being open to things and people thinking around maths when they close down, they're less open. So obviously that doesn't flourish for them. So that might be something we could talk about. But you are a maths teacher. But when we were growing up, I remember you used to like to draw. Uh, little pictures over and over. Do you remember you used to fill in the colouring things, like really precise? Mm-hmm. Your colouring was <laughs> mathematical in a way. You went into maths because you thought, well, there's other artists in the family and I should do something different because I can't compete with that. In my head, it was a competition, but I also knew it was a competition in my own head. Like I didn't think any of you were competing with me, but I felt like I was competing with you all and I felt like you were all way better than me. So I wrote off art completely. But in the middle of your maths career, went and did an art foundation course. Yes. So you went off. I remember you trekked off because you're four years older than me and you trekked off to Leicester, which when I came to visit you once seemed super grey. I mean, I was growing up in the countryside, so that was very green and Leicester looked very grey and urban to me. Um, did you enjoy doing your maths degree? Hated it. Hated every single second. Loathed it. They were the worst four years of my life. And sometimes I think, wow, I'm really lucky that that's the worst four years of my life because it wasn't, you know, <laughs> that means quite a, quite a lovely life, really. I really hated it. I hated the degree. I hated the city. I didn't particularly like the people I was on the course with. I was miserable. But I didn't know I could do anything different. It didn't even occur to me to take a different path. It didn't occur to me to ask to change courses or change universities even. It was not an option in my head. And so I just sort of trudged through it. And I don't know if you know this, but so it was a four-year degree, didn't feel I could do it, didn't feel great at maths. And I got to the night before my final exams and I worked hard. It wasn't like I bummed out on it. I didn't, I worked really hard, but I still didn't understand it. It was like written in a different language. And the night before or the day before my finals, I went to see the head of the course and I quit. And I said, I'm not, I'm not sitting any of these exams. 
I, I don't know how to do this. I've no clue what I'm doing. I'm just not going into that example. And luckily, he sensibly said, look, you've got nothing to lose. Go in there and do it. And he talked me around and I went in and I did it. And I did, I did all right. I got a, a second class degree, which I'm still a bit surprised at because I really sat in those halls and I didn't know what I was writing. Hated it. So most people freaking out before an exam and refusing to do it, there would be drama. Your freak out sounded quite logical. <laughs> Listen, here's the deal, guy. Rather than, I can't come. Your idea of a freakout sounds so measured and reasonable. I mean, I have bigger freakouts if I drop a shoe than you did about <laughs> At what point did you have a moment where you fell in love with maths? Because you're definitely in love with maths now. So I did my maths degree, surprisingly got a degree, had no clue what to do next. In my head, the reason why I had no other options was there was no way on this planet I was going back to Wales. Sorry, Wales, I think you're gorgeous, but there was no way on this planet I was ever going to go back. So I didn't know what my next steps were. And this was like the early 90s, like 1990, 1991. And I think at that time, as young people, I don't think we knew that we had choices. We just sort of floated through whatever track we were put on. And I had no clue what to do after I got my degree. I knew a lot of things I didn't want, but I didn't have a clue what I wanted. So I just signed up for a PGCE because at the time, if you're doing a mass PGCE, you were given some money to do it. So there was a bit of a sweetener. So I went, oh, I'll go to university for another year. And I went to Bristol this time and I stepped into my first classroom and I loved it. I didn't even know I wanted to be a teacher. It was not in my thinking to be a teacher or not to be a teacher. I was just doing another course. And I stepped into a classroom and for me, it was the funniest place I'd ever been in my life. I just thought it was brilliant. I thought teenagers were brilliant. They made me laugh all the time and I just adored it. So what happened then is I had a love affair with teaching from the very start. Like I fell completely deeply in love with teaching at first sight. And learning to love maths came out of that love of teaching because I wanted to be the best teacher I could be. And I really felt this really strongly in service of the students in my classroom. So some teachers want to be the best liked teacher or there can be a lot of ego in teaching. And for me, there was, well, I don't, I don't know if this is true, but I think there was very little ego in my teaching because I didn't care about screwing it up. I didn't care about doing it wrong as long as I could learn from that and do it better next time. And so that love of maths came out of that love of teaching because in order to teach maths properly, You've got to get behind the understanding of it. And maths is often taught really badly and with no understanding as a list of rules. And for me, I had to understand maths completely differently to the way I was taught it. And the maths I teach, there's no relationship at all to the maths I was taught or how I was taught it. So it was a slow burn love affair with maths, really slow. I mean, you were basically a baby yourself and you're teaching children. I mean, there's not that much of a difference. You would have been, what, like 21 and teaching? 18-year-olds. So I was, I was teaching sixth form in my first year of teaching. That's amazing. Now, here's something I want to point out, which I think is fascinating. So you were a bigger sister, but I didn't really feel like we grew up together. You were quite a bit older. You obviously didn't want me hanging out with you and your friends, <laughs> um, even though I tried. But I do remember these significant moments. I remember your 16th birthday. I remember you leaving home. I remember how you dressed when you went to discos. And I do remember a lot you going to university, but I don't, I don't remember. Like you told me recently that you left A-levels. You had a one fail. You left with one A-level? I was doing three A-levels. I dropped one, failed one and got a grade D in my maths. And that was the only reason I went on to do maths is it was the, <laughs> it was the only route out. 
Isn't it interesting? I was really good at art and still got, I think I got a B, which sucked because I took, did something a bit too adventurous for A-level. If I'd just done a pencil drawing of a still life, I'd have got an A. That's a lesson right there, isn't it? But neither of us are stupid, yet we didn't get good grades. I didn't realise how much your grades sucked. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. The reason why I'm saying this is I just don't remember what grades you got. All I knew was my big sister was going to university and I knew I got to go visit her. But I didn't know what was going on internally and how you were navigating it. And essentially, I had a low grade freak out a lot of the time. I just wanted to do what seemed like the smartest thing in front of me. So I never had a bigger plan other than, okay, just get through A-levels. Okay, just get through this degree. Um, your m- most recent job in teaching, one of the reasons why they hired you is that they wanted to show that learning isn't linear. Mm-hmm. I know maths teachers are always in demand, but you have never been lacking in a really good job offer. Yeah, I won't say where I work, but I, I went for an interview at this school not expecting to get the job. To be honest, I only went to leverage my pay. In the job I was in, I had no intention of getting this job. I was underqualified for it. So the job was to teach A-level. It was a maternity cover. I wanted a permanent job. And I remember the head teacher commented in the interview on my grades, because you, you still have to put down like your O-levels at the time or GCSEs, A-levels, degree, and all the other qualifications you have. And you know my O-levels were really mediocre B's and C's scraped them with this one A level and then this kind of this okay degree and then you know became a teacher and now I'm doing a doctorate in social sciences alongside teaching and what he said is he commented he said you've got an interesting academic history and I said oh my first reaction was like oh yeah no I know it's really checkered it's a really checkered history and he said no He said, you should use this with the students because our students here think that they fail one thing and that's it. That's them done for. And you have a really interesting path through education. You should use that in your teaching. And it's the first time anybody had ever said that to me. Now, I intrinsically believed that, that there is no such thing as a last chance in education. There just isn't at any age. And yet we put loads of pressure on students. This is really important. You better do really well in this exam. This is your last chance now. Go off and relax and do well, (laughs) which doesn't make any sense to me. So, yeah, it was a checkered history. But without that shitty maths degree that I hated, I wouldn't be in a job that I've loved for 25 years. I just loved that story. I mean, of course, I felt proud of you, but I actually swelled up with respect for that school. I'm like, wow, they must stand out. That is epic because I have other teacher friends who don't get hired because they're not Oxford Cambridge. And um, that just made me think, God, they really are interested in teaching something deeper. Even with one scraping A-level, you've managed to sort of blossom and blossom and blossom. It's just amazing. So going back into your teenage years, what was your experience of dating? What did it feel like to date? Did you feel like you were good at it? Did you enjoy dating? (laughs) So growing up in West Wales, it never occurred to me that I was gay. I didn't grow up with this big sense of gayness. And now I identify very much as queer, gay, lesbian. Growing up, it didn't even occur to me, even though, you know, we had family members who weren't always straight. So it wasn't like I was growing up in a culture that was completely straight and I'd only ever seen one model of how things could be. I just think I went with what was around me. I think I had my first snog at 15. I was quite a late developer in that sense. But between 15 and 16 was a really interesting moment for me because I didn't have boyfriends as a younger kid. Like I don't remember any kind of 
boyfriend territory at all in those sort of, you know, eight, nine, 10 year old, or even, even up to 15, nothing. I don't remember anything. But I remember going out and suddenly realizing, oh, if I do this, I can get guys to do that. I don't mean like in a, I wasn't trading sexual favors. I just mean like in a sort of like, you know, if I smile in this way, or if I wear a short skirt and it, it came to me really all at once, like that as a woman, I had certain powers and it was almost like an overnight realization. And so for me, dating boys, because they feel like boys now look back, I'm sure some of them are men, I don't know. For me, dating boys, it was okay. A couple of times I thought I was in love, had some relationships, you know, did have sex from the age of 16 onwards and it was okay. But I was always really confused when my friends talked about it. Because my friends would talk about, like, I'd break up with people and like, (laughs) Um, you know, and stuff. But the way my friends would talk about it was more, they had loads more feeling around it and more passion. And I could not understand where that feeling and passion was coming from. Because really, I think I felt quite neutral about it. I talked my way into a narrative. I talked my way into a feeling, but it was never really there. So my early years of dating was like playing. It was really easy because I did not give a fuck about any of the people I was dating ultimately. I wasn't falling in love with them at all. What I didn't realise is that it was the wrong gender. But I didn't know that at all till I met my first woman. So dating was really easy and it was kind of fun, but I didn't get the feeling for it the same way as my friends did. I knew there was something missing, but I could not have told you what it was. I could not have described to you what it was at the time. Looking back, it makes sense. You met your first girlfriend and, you know, went into a very fast, I suppose, committed, quite grown-up relationship mm-hmm. um, when you moved to Bristol, which is the same time you... So you were falling in love with a person and falling in love with maths at the same time. Because exactly. yeah. you were together six years, I think. Yeah, six years. Blimey, you know my you know my dating history better than I do, I reckon. I don't know about that, but I was quite good friends. And then I ended up moving to Bristol. So I know that you had different types of romances. I didn't know or get close with any of your girlfriends in between, but you eventually get married four or five years later. I was with my first girlfriend till 1998. And then I got married. Do you know what? I can't remember how awful is that? I think it might have been 2007. So I was with my last partner we're separated now for 16 years were you looking for something like when you got married or did it take you by surprise now when I met my my most recent partner 16 years ago I knew that was forever like I had that really strong feeling like no matter how difficult no matter how hard things got whatever we went through you know we went through failed IVF we went through all sorts of things. In 16 years, you go through a lot with someone. I always thought it was forever, like really properly believed that. And I'd never believed in forever before. I just met someone who, who fascinated me beyond anything I can compare it to. It's really hard to look back at a relationship through the lens of a breakup. And I'm only just coming out of breakup phase, which has taken two years. I thought there was a date when you broke up. I thought someone had to say it. You know, and it's been a muddled, muddy, difficult, horrible two years. So I don't know how to take stock of that relationship from here at the moment through that lens. But I know that a lot of the time I felt like a really deep sense of contentment and happiness and security and 
continued interest. I wanted to share, you came on the Relationship Ready program mm. and your brief for the weekend was to be relationship break, what did you call it? Relationship break. I called it divorce ready. Divorce ready, that's <laughs> it. You wanted to be divorce ready. And I was like, God, there's something really to this. We've been speaking, but you've been kind of having your process, but kind of in a lot of pain with your process. And do you want to talk a little bit about what you were looking to get out of some clarity or shifting? What were you looking for? I want to just go back to Christmas this year. For two years up until Christmas, it was definitely a process of breaking up. So just constantly going backwards and forwards, feeling like every time we saw each other, we were breaking up again. I felt like I was just going around this awful, vicious circle. And it was really horrible. And I just felt like it was immovable and unshiftable. And something happened at Christmas, which really shocked me. I realized in a moment, and I think I rang you, I realized suddenly that I'd been numbing out for two years, like completely, completely numbing out. And I hadn't even realized I was doing it. Like I couldn't go for a walk without my earphones on the highest volume of banging music. I could not leave the house without music in my head or without a podcast on. I couldn't come home without putting the telly on and the radio almost simultaneously, like making as much noise as I could so that I could escape my own thinking. Right. And I didn't even know I was doing this. You know, I think I used connections with other people in order to numb out. I, I think I used everything I could to just numb out. Right. Even fighting with my ex-partner, like even creating dramas and fights. I think all of that was about numbing out and about not facing the fact that this marriage was coming to an end. I just couldn't look that in the eye. And I thought I was doing all right. I thought I was on a process where I was like gradually doing a bit better all the time. And it was a bit of a shock to just kind of suddenly realise, no, I've just been so in denial of everything, of even the thought that we were breaking up, actually. Well, it makes me a bit um, tearful just talking about it. And I realised that. And I remember ringing you and I was really upset on the phone. And you said to me, what do you need right now? And I said, I just, I just need the next six months to disappear. because. You know that feeling when you get up in the morning and you don't know how to use up the hours because you feel like you're in such intense pain? But I think I explained that, how, how hard it was. And you said, what if it's not like that all the time? Just, just that one sentence did something incredible. It, it kind of it allowed me to rip up a script that I hadn't even realised was there. Like, oh, it takes six months of feeling this awful all the time. <laughs> You've got to really concentrate on feeling this bad the whole time. And then, and then you can tick that off and you can move to the next stage of whatever the process is that I didn't even realise I had in my head. And by you saying that, let this, this glimmer of possibility in that even though I still have days where I feel really sad, I have days where I feel really fucking joyful and really <laughs> good, like bouncing around and feeling really happy. And I, I, I'm not sure I would have noticed that maybe if you hadn't said that. It was almost like just notice that your mood will change. Now, I knew that from doing a little bit in the three principles previously, but it's that blind spot, isn't it? It's, this is different. <laughs> this is really serious. This is really serious upset, unlike all the other upset you can possibly experience. In a way, you planted that thought or you gave me permission to see outside of that script. So I went into relationship ready, I suppose, wanting to be free of other scripts that I didn't even know I was hanging on to. Because sometimes... I can't let go of something if I don't know I'm hanging on to it. <laughs> so if I don't know it's there and it just looks like my reality, then how can I even let go of it? So two things became really 
massively important to me that I took away from that retreat. One thing was about more of the sort of ripping up the scripts. Actually, nothing needs to be scripted. Like you script things, you make them up. That's the beauty of life. So if you can make them up and that's the beauty of life, you can make yourself miserable or, or happy. So, you know, you, you're sort of in charge of the scripts to a large degree. So that was really important. And then the other thing was I was really struck by how every single one of us on that retreat in one way or another, this was just my perception of it all, we kind of felt like we owed the world something or somebody something, like we owed something somehow. And I also walked away with this feeling of, actually, I owe nobody anything. Like, I don't, I don't even owe you anything, Leela. And I think you've said this to me before, but I really heard it that weekend. I owe nobody anything. And it means that instead of trying to explain myself to people or prejudge, try and sort of guess what they're thinking and try and manage that in some way, feeling like it's my responsibility to manage that. I mean, some days I'm not great at it, but most of the time I'm getting really good at like going, oh no, I don't actually owe anybody anything. So if I want to spend time with this person, then I'll spend time with this person and it's nobody else's business. Like nobody's. It's not another person's business. It's not like I don't have to explain anything away. And that was huge. And it suddenly made me feel more connected to people and more like reaching out and more like spending time with people. And I started to just have more fun. And I'm, and I'm not dating and I didn't date after that, but more fun with friends, colleagues, family. Like I felt easier around connecting with people on any level without any explanation. And it was so freeing. And there's one final thing. And I, I can't remember how it came up on the weekend retreat, but it was having had a, a childhood where I'd felt very abandoned as a child. I, yeah, I think I just realized, wow, probably in all my relationships, I've tried to behave in a way so that people don't abandon me. And I didn't even know I was carrying that around. Right? I've always felt like a relatively sorted, sane, <laughs> sane human being. I didn't even know I was looking at relationships through that lens. I suddenly felt really fearless around abandonment, fearless around any abandonment, like family could abandon me, friends, lovers. I suddenly feel really fearless about that, which was a really profound feeling that all ties in with the not owing anything. I think it all sort of ties together. I just felt such a massive sense of freedom. And what's really interesting at the moment is in a way, you know, whatever's gone down with me and my separated partner, in a way, I sort of at some point, do you want to go back and have a conversation and say, look, there's something I want to apologize for in a way. It's not the literal things that happen in the relationship, but this kind of, I think I really did think that she could externally make me happy. Like she was the source of my misery and the source of my contentment and the source of my happiness. And that I also behaved in a way that was probably quite frightened of being abandoned by her quite a lot. And I don't think that would have been particularly nice to be around. I could see even just going on a first and second date. And it's a very traditional idea of someone buys you dinner, then you owe them sex or whatever. You know, yeah. that's the most traditional form. <laughs> or, or at least interest. <laughs> yeah, but then a lot of the texting is like, yeah. well, I texted them last, they should text me back, or we had a long conversation, then they owe me. Or uh, what I would see quite commonly is that um, there would be a lot of texting in the beginning. And then once they'd actually got it on, there would be a lot of less texting. And then, you know, typically the women are left going, hang on a minute. So one end of the partner is going, where did all the loveliness go? Just did yes. that disappear? And it's very easy to subtly do an invisible 
tally in your head of who owes who what. Now, figuring that out and kind of doing things because you want to do them, not because it means anybody owes anybody anything, isn't really a literal thing. It's more what it's it's the direction of feeling really free, like there aren't any strings attached in yourself. So not only do you not owe them anything, but they don't owe you anything. Mm. And that can be interpreted in lots of ways. I would imagine I probably have people get really reactive about that and think, well, you know, surely if and that's but then people will just use you. I don't mean that. I mean, on a deeper mm-hmm. level, what if it's not a tallying? What if you're mm-hmm. ultimately always walking around debt free and so are they so that you're not going to accumulate emotional debt? And I think that what you're describing is what I felt. It really wasn't like oh, I don't owe anybody anything, therefore I turn into a completely selfish bitch. It wasn't that feeling at all. It was totally a feeling of, if I'm going to be there, I'm going to be wholly present there. Like, if I'm going to spend time, I'm going to deliberately spend time with someone. And I realised that people who owe me nothing are much nicer to be around than people who think they owe me an explanation or something. You know, we work with a lot of people that have gone through or going through a separation or have a lot of deep emotion around that. Oh, I, I heard something already I meant to say a minute ago. I'm going to research it and who it was because it really struck me. I think it was on Woman's Hour, an author of a book called How to Feel a Broken Heart. And I remember being in the kitchen and I was busying around half listening and I literally stopped in my tracks and thought, that's beautiful because when we think of heartbreak we often think of how to get over it how to get past it how to get to the other side you know grass is greener and there was something very stilling about you're allowed to feel it you don't have to talk yourself out of feeling it but there's a difference between feeling a broken heart and getting lost in a story about it and keep hurting yourself rather than say let's clean this up say it's a you know allowing people to feel it but without getting lost and trapped in it was the kind of interpretation I had. I'm kind of curious, you know, if there's people listening that are going through, you know, a tough time and you've had a couple of years of it being really hard and then you kind of have seen these things for yourself. Are you bobbling in and out? Do you have life hacks? You've shared the things that you really saw, but where are you at at the moment? Do you feel like you're in and out? Do you feel like you're mostly happy but occasionally, you know, get... I don't know, drag back down or does it just little thoughts come up now and then that make you feel sad and then they pass on or what? what's happening? I think all of that really. I know last week I had a real, I had a week where I just felt real loss, just really sad about losing that domestic space with someone. It was almost like I've moved on from missing the actual person to missing the state of being in a partnership. And I definitely go in and out of it. And I have days where I just feel great and joyful and I have days where I trip over something that really makes me sad suddenly and I don't feel like oh I realized all this stuff and suddenly life is perfect (laughs) it's like it's so not I definitely go in and out of it and more often than not I catch myself feeling it and going actually that's okay it was all right to feel that and I kind of I have a strong sense of of not really caring where this process leads like I really feel I don't want to be with anybody. I don't want to be dating. I'm actually really happy not doing any of that at the moment. And I think that will come back. I don't feel like one of those people who feel so scarred by a relationship I'll never, I'll never love again. I feel the opposite, actually. I feel like I'm totally capable of it. Just right now, right now, I'm okay just being. And that's really lovely. Because I think in my numbed out state, I felt like 
like I was rushing around trying to connect with people and, and fucking it up really badly, <laughs> not doing great and being messy and awful. And I got this second hand actually, Lila. So <laughs> this is not a conversation you had with me. It's a conversation you had with someone else about kind of going, yeah, I was just a messy bitch. I'm sure I trod on all sorts of people's feelings. And I'm just like, well, you know, I did that and I'm sorry, but that happened. I'm not going to like carry that through and torture myself with it. So yeah, in and out, but feeling a sort of level of okay and content. Yeah, I feel good. I feel good. I know it's impacted the lightness you've had and the not needing anything from anybody has allowed you to feel really free. Definitely. There's, the freer I feel, the more courageous I feel, which is, which is interesting. Like, I feel like I can say things sometimes that land with people without me overthinking it. It's just like, you, you said a little while ago, you said, Do you, are you yourself unedited with anybody? And I was like, no, not even you. And that's been in my mind a lot. Like, what is unedited me like? And why? Why do I edit myself? So I'm getting really curious about that. And editing myself less, the freer I feel, the less I edit. So I can really feel that you feel content being on your own. It's not about completing yourself with another person. Mm-hmm. And giving yourself time and space until that changes naturally. What do you feel hopeful about? I feel hopeful that I'm contented with or without anybody else. I feel hopeful that the world continues to be full of possibility. I suppose I feel hopeful that I'll feel attracted to people again. Like I feel very neutral around that. And I don't know whether that's just just that, just time, just being okay on my own. I don't care where this goes. I don't care if I end up with someone or not, actually. I'm not really thinking about that. Like I don't go, oh, hope one day I fall in love again. I sort of, I sort of know any of that is a possibility. And I don't really care where this leads at the moment. Lovely. Final question. What would you tell your 16-year-old self? First of all, and I'm sure this is common to lots of people, I would say, you know, you are, you are beautiful. Because, <laughs> my God, we don't appreciate our youthful selves until they're gone, do we? <laughs> I think I'd just kind of say, you know what, you're going to have a lot of fun. Don't wait around for life to happen. It's already happening. I guess it's that thing. It's already happening to you. Enjoy all of it and learn about the principles sooner, please. Because <laughs> your life would have been a lot easier. <laughs> Thank you so much. And um, let's see how, how you get on. And um, I'm really, really glad we took a bit of time to talk about the maths because I really think there's a connection between when you don't have restrictive thinking and thinking it's going to be hard or you're not the kind of person that can do maths it's the same as the thinking people have about relationships. Mm. So when you don't have a load of thinking about it and you have expansiveness around it, you can learn and explore and enjoy pretty much anything. Conversely, when I do maths and I'm worrying about the outcomes of the students and their grades, I teach a lot worse. Yeah, I can see the parallels, definitely. Oh, and I'm also hopeful if I remain single indefinitely that my vibrator doesn't break. Just saying, just chucking that out there. I'm not sure what the public is supposed to do about that, like a GoFundMe. <laughs> oh, my God, you can get a solid gold £10,000 vibrator from Lalo, apparently. I looked into it. <laughs> um, so thank you so, so much. Um, I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much yeah. for your time. You're welcome. It was really lovely to have 
some time to reflect so openly and just having that space and time to reflect, talking it out instead of just sitting and reflecting. It was really helpful. Thank you. Thank you for coming.